Welcome to Conservative One, the podcast defending traditions and freedoms with George Christensen. Never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. Socialists don't like ordinary people choosing, for they might not choose socialism. We cannot afford to be so politically correct anymore. Conservative One. Hi and welcome to another edition of Conservative One the podcast defending traditions and freedom. I'm George Christensen, your host and Australian Member of Parliament, and I'm joined by a very esteemed guest, Dr. Gavin Ashenden. Dr. Ashenden was, uh, is, I should say, a priest in the Church of God. He was a priest in the Church of England where he uh, actually served as honorary chaplain for the Queen for about uh, four years or more there. And uh, that all came to a halt when he resigned from the Church of England on principle uh, because of a number of different things, the liberal trajectory of that church. But it all culminated with the reading of the Quran in one of the cathedrals or churches in the United Kingdom, in one of the Anglican churches there. Uh, That was the straw that broke the camel's back. It led Dr. Ashenden away from his home church, and eventually he's been received into the Roman Catholic Church where it's possible he could be actually reordained as a priest. Dr. Ashenden joins us again for what is going to be a very, very interesting theological, philosophical and political discussion. So uh, when we were last talking, we were uh, discussing the, I, I guess, the the two styles of Christianity that you have out at the moment, progressive Christianity and orthodox Christianity. And uh, you gave a a very great statement there about um, why there's been a divergence there and and why the progressive nature of Christianity is wrong because it's moving away from the gospel. But I see another problem that has emerged that has dampened the spiritual authority of the church, even orthodox Christian leaders, and that is fear. You talk about the the zeitgeist. It doesn't just infect it in terms of the views, but it also infects it in terms of what the dominant view of the culture is and the reaction we see from the media. And in the UK, I mean, I'm just astonished by the fact that you can have police turning up to people's doors for you know, political comments that they've tweeted about or put up on Facebook. That sort of uh, fear that those sort of things instilled, either whether it's uh, policing by community bullying or or policing by the actual state, that's got to have an impact on the ability of true Orthodox Christianity to flourish, wouldn't you say? I think it's one of the most important things we have to face at the moment. And the the, the first stage is getting our head around it, as you've just said. I was helped to get my head around it uh, by my experience of Bible smuggling in the early 1980s. Tell us about that. Well, as a teenager, I grew up reading in particular two two authors. One was Dostoevsky and the other Solzhenitsyn. And what Solzhenitsyn was doing in particular was, was documenting what the Soviet Union was doing to Christianity and to political dissidents. People will find this surprising now, but in the early 1970s, 
Nobody knew. The progressive newspapers, the left-wing newspapers, continued to present the, 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 the communist experiment as, in the best possible terms, telling lies about it. And the reality of the gargantuan oppression uh, was hidden. Only Solzhenitsyn managed to write about it and get and get it out. And as I as I read his stuff, particularly a day in the life of Ivan Denisovich or the Gulag Archipelago, mm. I was just astonished. And I realized that, that that having become a Christian, my Christian brothers and sisters were giving a witness under the most terrible circumstances, and I I needed to do something. Well, the first thing we do in the life of the Spirit is pray. But I wanted to do something practical. Uh, I would say not political, but practical. And somebody asked me if I was up <laughs> to, to to smuggle Bibles behind the Iron Curtain. The Bibles are medical supplies because one of the mm. things that happened was if you were a Christian, you, you didn't get medical treatment. You had broken, if you like, the pact with a Soviet state and various uh, services the state offered, medicine, education, employment sometimes, were not available to you. So there were one of the prices you paid as a Christian was you didn't get a doctor. So mm-hmm. I, I took in medicine and, 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 and Bibles and genes that could be sold on the black market. Where, where were you practically doing that? How were you getting in and out? Uh, Moscow, uh, Leningrad and Prague were the three right. places. And um, through, an, through an established network, I'm guessing. Uh, yeah, well, through a, through a, sub, through a subterranean network. They, they would, the Czech thing was different. In, in Czechoslovakia, the state had decided to kill the Catholic Church by refusing any ordinations, and they said, "Well, in a general, you know, in a generation, they'll just die out. There won't be any priests. There won't be no mass." And so, you know, they, they were doing what the pandemic is doing here: closing churches and, and stopping ordinations. So, uh, my job in in Czechoslovakia was to carry through books in suitcases so that they could train priests underground. And the point of the, the great part of the experience was I met the most amazing people. I met the suffering church. I met people of the most astonishing caliber. I got roughed up a bit by the security services on the occasions I got really? caught, which did, did did my nerves in terribly. The Lord saw me through, but they were frightening and, and painful. Uh, I mean, at one point in Moscow, the KGB major interrogating me said, okay, you're going to prison for 20 years because, because the ring that you're wearing is made of silver, and that's bullion, and and you didn't declare it on the airplane, so you are now a bullion smuggler. Your your government wow. can't help you, and and do you know how long we send bullion smugglers to the gulag for? It's twenty years. Okay, he said, I'll do a deal with you. I'll give you one year off your twenty year sentence for every name and address you give me. Wow. So this was this this was this was difficult, <laughs> as you can imagine, and yeah. uh, because he, he was right, I I it turned out I hadn't realised it, but. I, you know, I hadn't declared. I mean, you know, I then had an argument with him and said, "Look, you know, it's silver rings, wow. three ounces of silver. For goodness' sake, are you really saying?" And he said, "Oh, wait a minute. Are you telling me that your customs officers, when someone comes in with three ounces of heroin, you know, bargains over whether it's a lot or a little? You know, mm-hmm. you've broken the law, mate. You're going down. It's a statutory tariff. But here's your way out of it." So I, I now look back on the people I was visiting with the most enormous love and respect. Whoever knew that the war would have fallen down by 89, we yeah. don't know. But meanwhile, I, I remember those people and the price they paid and the regime they lived under. And what has struck me, what struck me as as, a, as, the, uh, as the year 2000 came around was, 
I suddenly smelt, I can't explain this very well, I smelt communism in the air. I smelt totalitarianism like, like a taste at the back of my mouth, mm. a rusty, a rusty, sick taste. And I thought, wait, that, that's, that's what I tasted, smelt, felt in the Soviet Union behind the Iron Curtain. I can't, you know, Fukuyama has said Hegelian history is over. It, we're a democracy now. It can't possibly be coming back. Where's this coming from? And I then began to do some, some some reading, some thinking, some talking. I discovered the Frankfurt School, whom I hadn't come across before. Everyone yes. knows about them now. But, but you know, in the year 2000, they weren't on everyone's reading list. I wonder how um, many people actually know about them in general, the Frankfurt School. Just just elaborate on that for a moment. Well, it, it's, it's, it's so simple. It's ridiculous. Um, Marx was a very bad economist. Um, he wanted – so it, it's it, – it's a sort of very simple stage thing. Marx wanted a good thing. He wanted justice and equality. But he decided that what was wrong with society was that there was this, these two tribes. There was the proletariat, the workers, and there were the bosses, the capitalists. And the bosses were the bad people and the proletariat were the good people. So there needed to be a revolution to produce this good uh, society of equality and fairness and fair distribution. Uh, and as an economist, he explained how this would happen. Now, there were a bunch of people who watched the the, the enforced proletarian revolution uh, in Russia. And they said, we wonder if, well, two things. First of all, we're not sure the proletariat are going to rise of their own free will in the rest of the world. And secondly, even if they do, we're not sure that Marx's economists, economics has got it right. We don't, we don't think this may last. And, you know, it didn't last. It was Marx's bad economics that brought uh, that brought the whole thing tumbling down. Gorbachev and others helped, but but it was essentially an economic failure in 1989. So they said, well, let's see if we can go about this a different way. We want the same end. We want an equal society with a redistribution of power away from those who have it. But instead of treating this politically and economically, let's treat it politically and culturally. The real enemy is Christianity. And we want to take power away from anything masculine, anything white, anything colonial, anything capitalist, uh, and 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 give it to everything that isn't those things. So let's so let's start doing that, and we'll we'll work our way through all the institutions with this with our our propaganda, with our our view, and see if we can capture the mind, the heart, and the imaginations of the people with it. And beginning with the universities, they did exactly that. And so our, our kids are now completely brainwashed uh, in the name of of equality without. No one's taught them to ask any basic questions like, what do you mean by equality? And equality works very well with numbers, but it doesn't work at all with values. You know, Beethoven is not equal to Mozart, is not equal to Haydn, is not equal to the Beatles. The, you know, the, so we've taken this, this blunt bamboozling tool and, and we've imposed it and it's gone everywhere. It's gone through the judiciary, the police, the Boy Scouts. Captured and the institutions. Totally, that was, that, um, was the, that was the point of it all, <laughs> and 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 it's captured the church. And and for the, yeah. the theological point, for a moment, is that if you, uh, feminism is of course the 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 vanguard of it all, um, and feminism has several waves, and it's a complicated thing, and there are good bits to feminism and disastrous bits to it. But my greatest beef with feminism is that it it has a certain uh, anger and hatred towards the masculine. It's not just about equality; it's about reparation. And it's teaching people to hate the masculine, and in particular to hate fathers and to hate fatherhood. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's talking in terms of 
the bad patriarchy. Um, and what this means is that it, it makes everything masculine toxic. Now, if Jesus came to introduce us to the Father, and God really is the Father, um, we could argue about the difference between metaphors and absolute reality. It's a tricky argument. But the fact, but but the fact is, Jesus came to introduce us to the Father. You can't evangelize anymore if being if your if the Father is a hated, despicable, despotic, power-ridden figure, <laughs> and so yep. it kind of pulls everything out from underneath. Evan- and then you might say, well, okay, maybe maybe we don't need to call God Father. Maybe we can call it parent or mother so now there are several problems if you call god it you become a buddhist yeah. now you've got a different religion yep you're different religion and c.s lewis wrote in the 1940s and said let's imagine you call god mother let's see what happens then and um he was a short essay but essentially he said you end up with a very different religion mm-hmm. uh, much the same as i heard a psychologist recently describe parenting between fathers and mothers um, they do parenting in different ways with different results, and actually, you need both. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you if you restrict it to, to 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 mothering, you lose you lose some absolutely essential ingredients. And one of the things we look back over the history of religions, and essentially they divide into two: they divide into sky father and earth mother. Now, earth mother is all about transcendence. I mean, at this point, it fits into the whole ecological debate we're having. Gaia. Yes. Uh, uh, our, our, our nurturing mother whom we must protect and of course we must be as ecologically responsible as we possibly can I'm appalled at a plastic being put into the oceans but even if God is not literally our father and he might be but even if he's not the notion of fatherhood distinguishes a transcendent creator God from an imminent creation mother God in other words it, it's a distinction between creator and creation between transcendence and imminence uh, between, I would say, almost authority and nurture. You, know, you, you need both, but you can't have nurture without authority. So if you strip away the masculinity from the Judeo-Christian tradition, first of all, you do it in the face of God's own self-definition. God's own, God's preferred gender is he. Yes. <laughs> uh, um, and, and, and secondly, we can see there are theological consequences to doing that that move you away from uh, what we find in in the Bible and Christian tradition, and as it happens, make it impossible to do what Jesus did, which is to bring people reconciled to their heavenly Father. Well, that's really very serious. So there's a kind of there is a also the church. The, the point of going down this um, theological alleyway was that the church is one of the institutions that's been captured by the Frankfurt School, and it that's too right. has it too has looked at gender and said, okay, let's buy into the political zeitgeist. You know, these horrible, pale, male, stale figures, we'll have we'll have black, brown, lesbian, feminine women figures instead. Uh, I'm not even parodying. This is the trajectory the Episcopalian Church in America has gone on. And they will be better. Well, they might be different, but they're certainly not better. But, it, but, but the difference means that we have cut the umbilical cord of revelation. And so... So even if they were right, I mean, let's imagine for a moment, two sides of the same coin. Let's let's check both sides out. Uh, let's imagine that the cultural Marxist of Frankfurt School were bringing something redemptive, restorative, re- renewing movement. How does it work? And if you look at the progressive Christian churches, it doesn't work. Mm. They 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 they. Um, 
almost all the women theologians I know are feminists, and feminism is a relativistic philosophical approach to life. It doesn't like absolutes. The whole egalitarian shape of thinking is that you, you don't have absolutes. You have a series of, of different values which are held in a relativistic equality with each other. Mm. So, you know, the problem with that is it, you, once you begin to apply that, to, for example, to Jesus, Mohammed, and Buddha, if that's your framework, you'll say, well, you know, they're all spiritual teachers. They all bring nice and good things to us. We, we probably shouldn't favor one above the other. And you're, you're straight into the whole relativism of the early 20th century. But it isn't true. Moses, Mohammed, and Buddha, uh, and Jesus, sorry, Jesus, Mohammed, and Buddha, uh, gave very different analyses to the human condition, in some points completely contradictory. Mm-hmm. And, and you cannot take an egalitarian feminist relativistic view to them. You, you know, Jesus doesn't allow you to do that. You either say, I accept his claims, or else in the fairly simple but nonetheless effective diagnosis of C.S. Lewis, he, he's a fraud or a madman. He's either what he said he was, or he's lying, or mistaken, or or... or irrational. Um, So the zeitgeist undermines authentic Christianity at every stage and in every way. And the fact that the church has simply gone along with it out of ignorance, love for the cool, not thinking through uh, theological uh, myopia is is desperately dangerous. And where the church has kept the biblical faith, it flourishes. People come to Jesus, they're born again. They see the sacramental life for what it is where it follows the political egalitarian Frankfurt school informed zeitgeist, it's just religion. It's just spirituality. That's you right. know, if this if this yes. floats your boat, enjoy it, but but you know, don't mm. don't let it take control of your life. Don't don't die for it. Don't surrender to it. Yeah. Uh, you know, you pick and mix the bits you like. It's you know it's it, a, it's, it's your it's a temple over modern society is all it is. Um, and that's why uh, people don't turn onto it. And uh, exactly. I, I, I've taken you down that, as you say, theological alleyway and a bit of a philosophical alleyway when I asked about the uh, the Frankfurt School. And I'm glad I did take you down that because that was uh, extremely interesting. You're listening to Conservative Wine. Can I draw you back to the element of of orthodox christians perhaps being in fear of mm. of of social bullying of of actual laws of the state and persecutions by the state particularly in western countries i'll just draw you back to that well they should be in fear and so so the reason we went on this long peregrination and thank you for letting me go down it is because having seen what totalitarian uh left wing revolutionary utopianism looked like in practice, it made me very afraid. Uh, the cost you, the cost of this for Christians is enormous. People get sent to jail, they lose their jobs, they, they might even be executed by the state. Now, in one sense, this is nothing new. Christians have been being executed by the state throughout our whole history from Nero onwards. But you need to know it's coming. <laughs> so, um, we can't escape persecution, and it may be that God has done us the honor of inviting us to become martyrs for the faith. I couldn't have conceived of that happening 20 years ago, but society has moved so fast that I think it's right to be afraid of the bullying state, because the bullying, it's, it's not obvious what's going to stop the bullying. It's not obvious how you 
how you reconfigure the thinking of the judiciary or our parliamentarians or our police or our teachers. Um, how, how are we going to persuade them that they've been swept up uh, into preparing for a dystopia that will yeah. that will persecute? But, you know, the first thing that this that the, the, the Frankfurt School did is engage in what Orwell predicted, which is the changing of language. Yeah. So we, you know, we have the nonsense like, well, we're being inclusive. No, you're not. You're just changing one group who's being included and you're excluding, excluding another group. Another. You're not being you're not being inclusive at all. That's not but but the word has become incl- you know, it's yeah. all words are taken on a different meaning. A friend of mine was was reading to uh to her daughter and <laughs> saying, I've got a terrible problem. I've been reading to her from children's literature of the mid nineteen hundred to the mid twentieth century, and she's starting to use the word gay to mean happy. Yeah. <laughs> and what on earth am I going to do when she goes to school and say, well, you know, I'm feeling gay today. <laughs> People think she's come out. Um, so, I mean, it's it's both a joke and it's not a joke. She said, look, I've really got a problem. Language, here's a way that language has changed. And I, it, you know, it's not, it's not an enormous problem it requires dealing with. But in terms of uh, more serious language like equality and inclusion, uh, changing their meaning, we, we have a very real problem because society is being brainwashed but but we're not the only ones who are afraid the reason why so much of society has has gone across it's a bit like germany in bonhoeffer's time people are afraid of being left out they're afraid of being called fascists or right-wing or narrow-minded or or hate-filled who wants to be called hate-filled so Mm. everyone is afraid uh, and and they're they're right to be afraid in, in Australia, and I'm not sure what the situation is in the UK with this, I think that you are so far down the track there, as I said, with police knocking on people's doors for putting up uh, politically incorrect social media posts that it's not funny. It's very, very scary, in fact. So I look at what happens there and I'm thinking, is that the future for my country, which I consider to be a, a democracy with a great level of freedom? I mean, uh, uh, religion is all about belief belief is about thought and uh, i would think that the one thing that we innately have as humans and that needs to be preserved as at all costs is freedom of thought uh, and also freedom of speech which emanates from thought but freedom of thought in particular so freedom of religion goes hand in hand with that in australia we're talking about potentially bringing in laws which try to enshrine some sense of freedom uh, for uh, following your faith. Now it's fraught with a lot of disaster. It's sort of um, it's it's a it's a landscape filled with uh, with landmines that uh, we've got to try and avoid. But what do you think of that strategy to to try and legislate so that these freedoms can't be impeded? Well, that's a very interesting question, and and I. I I wished I was still a law student studying, juris, uh, studying jurisprudence because then my, my my mind would be better equipped to deal with it. I think the difficulty I have is that you you is there's a danger of decontextualizing this thing. I mean, you're you're you've described the situation as well. We have this progressive culture which is closing down freedom of thought, speech, and belief. Can we stop it? Can we put something uh, a, a barrier? a bullock in a way. Um, and I think you'll have difficulty doing it because uh, the restrictions on speech and belief and thought are a symptom. They're not a cause. Mm. And they're a symptom of the progressive culture. 
I think you have to fight the progressive culture at the roots. You have to you have to deal with the ideology. In one sense, if you're trying to put up safety barriers, uh, it's too late already. Because I mean, one reason is that uh, you can't make all religions equal. I mean, let's say you had a rejuvenation of an Inca religion, and they said, well, actually. Uh, we need to sacrifice babies because yeah. that's the way we're going to placate. And and you know what? This is part of a faith thing. And you passed a law saying we're free to do what we want. And so society would then say, oh, well, we did say that, but there are exceptions and you're one of them. Now, the problem with that is that that's where they already are with Christians. Um, Christians say it's against our faith to kill babies in the womb. Uh, and society already turns around and say, oh, you know what? That's too bad. We don't accept that. You have to shut up. That's that's an offence. More than you that, can't. in Australia, I'm not sure in the UK, but uh, there are states here in Australia where you're actually restricted uh, from even standing outside an abortion clinic within 150 to 200 metres outside of one and praying. That would Absolutely. actually be a crime. So um, I hear and, what you're saying and, here. And, 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 as, and as a, as a, as a priest, uh, you hear confessions and someone says, I'm... I'm in this lifestyle, I'm addicted, I, I, I want to be free, can you help me? And the answer is you can, so long as you're not gay. <laughs> and if you're gay and you help someone, that's called uh, reparative therapy and you're now a criminal. Uh, and so the reason I think what you're trying to do won't work is because um, real egalitarianism is a fake. Um, everyone makes exceptions. There's always a hierarchy of preference. Yeah. The, the point about the, the, the communist left-wing progressive agenda is it's it's pretending. <laughs> it's selling itself, saying, okay, let's have a lovely society where everyone is equal. Nobody's above each other. We don't preference you know, one value over another. But it's never true. And so if Christians allow that, they will discover that they are the people who are the exception to the rule. And therefore, you know, you it's too late already. You won't succeed. You have to win the you have to win the fight for minds and ideas. And do you and think do you think to we me, can win that? Do you think I, I well, would say I'm I'm very pessimistic about that. Uh, you would have read the Benedict Option like I have by Rod Dreher. Yeah. I was talking to the person on my previous uh, podcast episode. Kurt Malberg, a young blogger in Australia, about this. I, I'm very pessimistic about the trajectory uh, that the culture and civilization is taking. I, I actually said to him, I don't think that there is any saving the civilization. The civilization is going down. He talked about the need for revival. And I said, Well, I don't think that Jesus came to save the civilization. And like all civilizations, it'll come to an end and something else will replace it. And I think we're living through that. But uh, that's just me. What do you well, think? No, no, no. I, 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 I agree with you. And I'm deemed a, a pessimist by people for saying that. I mean, I got slightly mistook by your question. Your question was, can we change people's minds? If you'd said, will we? <laughs> my, answer <laughs> okay. would have, my answer would have been different. So of course. can we? Yes, we can. Try. What? Because St. Augustine said, you've made us for ourselves and our hearts are restless until we find ourselves in you. And that means that people will always be dissatisfied with having their personality defined by, by belonging to a group that has a sexual identity that will never, ever satisfy people in the long term. It's okay for the moment, but, but you know, we can because that's not good enough. Will we? At this point, I'm with you. No, I don't think we will. I, I think... First of all, I don't think it takes into account evil. 
I think the, the force, I mean, the devil is real. Um, I would have been very hesitant to say this in the public space 25 years ago because I would have thought that people would then discount everything else I said, but I've had horrible experiences where he has exposed himself, if you don't mind the pun, uh, to me and attacked me. And I now know the devil is real and I realize that you have to read Christian history as a struggle between the Holy Spirit and the diabolical. The diabolical perverts God's purposes. And therefore, it isn't just about rational argument. It's also, and this is partly why I've become a Catholic, it's also about the power of the sacraments. It's about the power of the saints. It's about the power of holiness. We're in a spiritual war here. And one of the reasons why uh, we will have difficulty winning it is that um, simply being courageous and fighting it intellectually, important though that is, essential though that is, isn't the whole story. There has to be an added element. And what we've discovered in history is that um, that, that the perversion of evil sometimes dominates. H- how was it that, that the German people got taken in by Nazism? This wasn't a political thing at the deepest level. It was a spiritual thing, mm. you know, a spiritual thing that was going to kill six million of God's people. If you just treat Nazism as a ghastly political phenomenon, you miss half the point, maybe more than half. So we're in a position where we are actually fighting evil. And in one sense, this is a great help for Christians to call it out like it is. Some people will think we're medieval obscurantists and or mad in the Freudian critique. But we'll say, look, you know, how how else can you explain these things? One of the reasons why I became a Christian in the beginning was because of Auschwitz. I looked at Auschwitz, I read about it, and I thought, I don't believe human beings are capable of this by themselves. There has to be something poisonous that amplified our human vices to this point. And that was one of the ways that prepared me, I think, for for, for Jesus' confrontation with the devil in the New Testament. And we become very hesitant about this. I mean, earlier on, if you don't mind my tying the, the links together, I said I'd become a Jungian, partly as an antidote to Freud. Mm. It was Freud who made this dreadful link between mental illness and spiritual experience that, that our society has never quite kicked off. It was a terrible piece of research. If 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 you read the paper, you think, how on earth did we ever swallow this? And the reason I was attracted to Jung was because he had the notion of the shadow, and that was one way of dealing with evil that I thought could manage. But it, it's, uh, but it's it's in fact it's it's not, it, and it's only partially true. So we have to recognise we're dealing with evil, and it looks as though. Uh, our society may be succumbing to evil. And I think abortion is part of that. If you kill, if you murder, uh, in our country, 8 million children. In America, 60 million children. If you kill your own children, you have given way to evil. You have effectively entered a kind of blood-letting religion that, that is very similar to what the Incas did. And if there's a struggle between good and evil in the world and the whole of society chooses to go down that route and do that most appalling, murderous offer of, of um, uh, effectively worship to an alien god, that's really what abortion comes down to. Um, the alien god may be convenience, lifestyle, rights over one's body, but you're still killing someone to do it. Uh, and I think I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if from a kind of cosmological, <clears throat> metaphysical view, devotion to abortion isn't the thing that's tipped the balance in the struggle between good and evil in our lives. Uh, and therefore, will we win it? 
no, I don't think we will. I think you're quite right. I think we have poisoned the well we drink out of and it may kill us as a civilization. Uh, what will happen then? Well, God will continue his work through Jesus of calling people to sanity, to to, to salvation, uh, to a better way of living, and uh, and people will hear. But our society has lost it, I think. And when we, you know, we may we may be a bit like the, the captain of the Titanic. It may be that we're called to be on the bridge to the last moment, or or uh, to comfort people as they prepare for the, the death, both of the body and of the soul and the society. Um, and to be faithful to Jesus in these circumstances, and that's that's a privilege and an honour. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we have spent over an hour now uh, talking about all of these big issues, and um, ending on that uh, very solemn note is not where I want, to, uh, not what I want to do. Instead, uh, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to put to most of the uh, people that appear on my podcast. If you were Prime Minister, and you can choose which country, whether it's the UK or Australia, but probably the UK because that's your home, if you were the Prime Minister for a day, just a day, you didn't know consequences, you could come and go, what would you do? What is the one thing that you would do, Dr. Ashenden? Uh, if I was Archbishop, I would, found a whole <laughs> load of, I would find a whole load of monasteries. If I was Prime Minister... I would I would found a whole load of Christian schools uh, in every community uh, with with the with the funding so that if they could grow exponentially and defend them from uh, from political and philosophical attack. I would plant Christian schools. Well, you you, you gazumped me, so I was going to say, well, what if you were Pope for a day? <laughs> <laughs> Mon monasteries, monasteries. We, we need we need purity and prayer I, I i believe in the spiritual struggle that we have that that offering the sacrifice to the mass and 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 praying uh, and giving lives over to jesus creates at this point you one runs the risk of sounding new age but creates a spiritual potency or energy uh, a spiritual capital that rebalances the struggle that we're in it's certainly true that in my life that when I try and do it without praying, it doesn't work. When I start praying, and praying is very hard, and, 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 and the enemy does everything can to stop us doing it, it changes the dynamic. We have to have houses of prayer. One of the worst things that happened in my country is that we had a king who destroyed all the houses of prayer in a kind of spiritual genocidal act. And, uh, you know, our country has never recovered. We've had a couple of renewals. We had the wonderful Wesleyan renewal, which was, where God gave the church the opportunity uh, once again to put Jesus and, and, and conversion and new life at the heart of its agenda. And we had a magnificent Catholic renewal in the Oxford movement. Uh, and my country turned its back on both. Um, and that one of the reasons I've, I have found the Roman Catholic Church, I've decided the Roman Catholic Church is the one that has the resources across the world, the spiritual and the theological insight and resources to deal with this life or death fight that we're in. Anglicanism doesn't have it because it has no single magisterium. It doesn't have a focus of authority that you can appeal to when you fall out theologically. In other words, it, it splits inevitably into a whole series of different groups. And by splitting, it can't do its job. Uh, the Catholic Church is fighting the same fight, but you have the magisterium. 
and no no single pope, no group of bishops has the power in the Catholic Church to pervert the historic witness, and therefore it has the resources. And I think along with orthodoxy, um, the pre-Reformation churches are the only ones that have the resources to stand up and fight this beast that we're dealing with. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Gavin Ashenden. It's been a uh, theological, philosophical and political tour de force for the last hour. Uh, I thank you very much for joining us here at Conservative One. I hope that we will uh, perhaps talk to you again at some stage down the track. God bless you and all that you do. George, you've been very kind. <laughs> thank you for being so patient as, as, as to have a conversation with me. I've enjoyed it greatly. Bless you. Lovely to talk to you. Bye-bye. Who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come? We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. You've been listening to the Conservative One podcast with George Christensen.